Well, uh, before we pray, we are in John 10. The subtitle of our, this series called Following Jesus Together this morning is The Good Shepherd and His Sheep. It's part two from last week when we heard Jesus teach us that he is the door and the good shepherd. And this week we're moving on into verses 22 to 29 as we look at more what it means that he is the good shepherd. Without further ado, I'm going to read our whole text this morning, verses 22 to 29. You'll notice there's an artificial stop. I'm not reading verse 30. Lord willing, we'll be getting into that next week. But look with me at John 10, beginning at verse 22. By the way, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and Bo will get one to you. Raise your hand high, keep it up, no shame. And not having a Bible, we'd love to get one to you so you can read along as well. And keep as a gift from us. John chapter 10 verse 22 to 29. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him. And they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, as we approach you in asking for you to prepare our hearts for your word, we're mindful that our sisters, our wives, our grandmothers, our daughters, our friends are away for a retreat, and even now listening to your word spoken and worshiping together. And so we pray that you would bless our sisters. We know that there are those who don't know Christ among them at this moment. We pray that you would save, that you would heal the hurting with your gospel and do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think among them. And Father, we ask the same for us. As we have assembled around your word to sit under your word preached to hear you, Jesus, speak to us in and through your word. Lord, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to believe, give us minds to think, give us eyes to see, give us all that we need to see and savor the Good Shepherd this morning. And Lord, that happens when your spirit works with your word to accomplish your purposes. So to that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, all of God's people said, amen. What does it mean that Jesus is the good shepherd? Uh, If you have spent any time around Christians or Christianity, any time reading the Bible, this is one of the many titles and descriptions, metaphors given of Jesus. And it's one of the most beloved of those titles and descriptions. Jesus is the good shepherd 
Now, is that meant to just give us some sentimental and warm feelings? Or is there more? And if Jesus is the good shepherd, what does it mean that his people are his sheep? And specifically, what does it mean if you are a Christian for you to be his sheep? And what does it mean for those who are not his sheep? Well, our text this morning, last week and next week, seeks to answer and address questions such as these. Now, if you look this morning at John 10, verse 22, it was way back in the beginning of chapter 7. From chapter 7 all the way to 1021, where we ended last week, chapter 7 all the way to 1021, that was one episode of Jesus being at the Feast of Tabernacles. And John, who's writing this gospel, just gives this little narrative insert. At that time, the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. It was about December. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. It's subtle, but it is an abrupt transition. For all those long three and a half, four chapters that we were following Jesus at the tabernacles, suddenly there's a three-month jump. It's December, and it's Hanukkah, and it's another feast. But this time jump, interestingly, the way John writes his gospel, this time jump does not interrupt what Jesus has been teaching, but it continues it. It's, it's almost as if Jesus is continuing the very same dialogue of him being the good shepherd, of him being the door of the sheep, of him um, gathering sheep for himself. It just keeps going as if there was no time distance of three months between the two. So that's, that's important to recognize as we continue then this part two of Jesus being the good shepherd. And if we had time to read to the end of the text, we would see once again, at the end of John 10, as Jesus finishes his teaching regarding being the good shepherd, what happens? Does it cause all the people, especially the religious leaders, to raise their hands in worship of God and finally say, the good shepherd has come and they're excited and, and stoked to have him there? No, what do they do? They fill their hands with rocks to throw at Jesus and kill him. Now, we saw last week, and we're seeing again this week, that when Jesus last week said, I am the door of the sheep, that was verses 7 and 9, and I am the good shepherd, verses 11 and 14, those titles and descriptions of himself add to the famous I am statements across the Gospel of John. There's seven of them. Seven I am statements, you can go back and listen to the very first sermon in the series to see how significant these I am statements are. But Jesus has already told us he is the bread of life in chapter 6. Jesus has told us that he is the light of the world in chapters 8 and 9. And now last week and this week, I am the door of the sheep and I am the good shepherd. In today's passage, verses 22 to 29, this text is arranged where Jesus is giving us greater understanding of those I am statements. Those titles and descriptions of himself. What does it mean that he's a good shepherd? What does it mean that you're a sheep? And what does it mean to not be his sheep? So, for those of you taking notes, the sermon comes to us in five parts this morning. Five parts if you're writing this down or you can take a picture of the screen. Here they are. Number one, summary statements of what we're going to see. Number one, 
the good shepherd's work works bear witness about him. That's verse 25, and we'll sneak down the verses 37 and 38 for that. Number two, goats don't believe the good shepherd. That's verse 26. Number three, the good shepherd knows his sheep. It's verse 27. Number four, the good shepherd gives his sheep eternal life. It's verse 28. And lastly, the father gave all things to the good shepherd. That's verse 29. You can see that we are walking verse by verse, carefully and closely through our passage this morning. So with that said, point number one, as we learn about what it means that Jesus is the good shepherd, number one, the good shepherd's works bear witness about him. Look at verse 24. We'll begin here. The Jews, it's, it's surrounded. The Jews surrounded Jesus and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Now jump down to verses 37 and 38. Jesus is picking this back up again. He says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So here we see the argument that Jesus has with the religious leaders as they come to him and say, tell us plainly, it is framed at the beginning of the text and at the end of the chapter centered around Jesus's works. The works of Jesus are proof that Jesus is who he says he is. And when they're written down in our Bibles, they're put there to be evidences for you to either believe Jesus or reject Jesus. And verse 37, what's pretty, what's very astounding is in verse 37, Jesus claims that his works are actually the works of God the Father. That Jesus is subordinate, as it were, and that the Father, all that Jesus teaches, all that Jesus does, all the miracles, everything that he does, all his works, are really the Father, by the Spirit, doing the works through the Son. The Trinity is, is at work. So what Jesus says here then is to not believe the works that Jesus did is to not believe the Father. Someone cannot claim to say, I follow God or I have the Father and deny Jesus or deny Jesus' works. No Jesus, then no Father. If you deny the works of Jesus, you are necessarily denying the Father. But what are those works? Well, you can read all the gospel accounts, but, but here in John, the works of Jesus was, was turning water to wine in chapter 2. 
The works of Jesus was, was overturning the tables of the money traders and scattering the, uh, the sinners uh, who were stealing from people and the animals from the temple in chapter 2. That was a work. Healing the official son in chapter 4. Healing the disabled man in chapter 5. Feeding the 5,000 miraculously in, back in chapter 6. Walking on water. And then healing the blind man in chapter 9. Those are all samples and examples of the multitude of works. And all of those things, water to wine, healing the blind, everything in between, they all serve to prove Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And as the Son of God, have you ever wondered why Jesus does his miracles? You you, you read your whole Bible and you'll see that at certain points in the Old Testament, miracles took place. But then we come to the gospel accounts and God becomes man in Christ. And here's Jesus, truly God and truly man. And all over the place, these amazing miracles and teachings are taking place through Christ. Why? Jesus is the last Adam. What do I mean? All of these works that Jesus is now um, confronting the Pharisees with and saying they, they should believe him, the works of Jesus are designed to reverse the curse. The works of Jesus are all foretastes of the future recreation. On that day when Jesus sits on his throne, judges sheep and goats, Matthew 24 and 25, and then he creates the new heavens and new earth. And the sheep enter glory and the goats enter eternal judgment in the lake of fire. And what Jesus is doing is when he comes and he does all of these miracles, they're not just magic tricks. He is undoing what Adam did in Genesis 3 when Adam plunged humanity into mischief and mayhem through the rebellion and rejection of God and sin. So Jesus has come to reverse the curse on creation, to remove the thorns and thistles. Jesus has come to save the lost. Jesus has come to reconcile people to God because old Adam initiated the curse, as it were. Old Adam plunged us into ruin and caused us to be lost. And old Adam broke the relationship between people and God. Jesus has come to reverse what Adam did. That's why Jesus is the last Adam. So the works of Jesus are entirely natural. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus healing the blind man ought to be normal. Well, how can I say that? The works of Jesus, because they're reversing the curse, you have to recognize that aging is not original to God's design and creation. Death is not original to God's design and creation. Neither is sickness. Neither is poor eyesight and your need for glasses. Neither is headaches. Neither is depression. Neither is physical deformity. Neither is spiritual deformity. And all of the unnatural desires that accommodate our spiritual deformity. And on we can go. 
all the things that we think are normal, all the hardships, all the pain, sorrows, and sufferings, everything that we see as normal in this life are entirely abnormal and not native to creation. They're not native to Genesis 1 and 2. They began in Genesis 3 with the fall. Jesus, the last Adam, has come to reverse that. But you know, or let me remind you, the most unnatural, if I can say it that way, result of the fall is your separation from God and your condemnation under him. Adam and Eve, created as image bearers of God, were created in beautiful, exquisite, sinless, wonderful relationship with God as daughters and sons to him and king and queen over creation. And their fall broke the sonship and daughtership. And then they've perverted what it means to be kings and queens of creation. And we do the same. So the most unnatural result of the fall is our separation from God and being condemned. And so the greatest work that Jesus has come to do, greater than healing the blind and the lame man and walking on water and turning water to wine, the greatest work that Jesus has come to do is to put himself up on the cross and atone for the sins of his sheep. To die for his people. To remove our condemnation before God and to reconcile God to us, back to us, to remove our condemnation. The religious leaders saw Jesus' works. They, they heard him talking about death, but no one understood at this point in the gospel account. But the religious leaders saw his works and it did not draw out wonder and worship from their hearts. As I said earlier, when they saw Jesus healing the blind and the lame man, both on the Sabbath, rather than filling their hands with praise, they filled their hands with rocks to kill Christ. The religious leaders saw the works of Jesus. And Jesus, what is it? tell us plainly if you're the Christ. Verse 25, I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. These works that he does prove that Jesus is who Jesus is. They wanted to kill Jesus because of the works. And the question is, what do you want to do with Jesus because of his works? Have you believed truly? Do you receive the recorded witness of the Bible or do you reject it? If you reject the recorded witness of the Bible, understand from Jesus' own words and his own lips, if you reject the works that things that he does, you're necessarily rejecting the Father. You, you can't say, well, I, I, I want the teachings of Jesus, but I, I know that those miracles and things are just religious myths. If you believe that you're mistaken... And if you're unwilling to correct that mistake, it shows that you are not a sheep of Jesus. The classic reality of classic liberal scholars all through this, well, through all of history, but especially in the 1800s and up to this very present, is that when you have Christians who want to divorce the teachings of Jesus from Jesus being the God-man and his miracles, you can't have his teachings but reject everything else about him. Because then you reject him. 
and he is clear. There's no, there's no middle ground on that. And so the question is, what have you done with Jesus, and do you believe what he says about himself? Do you believe his witness? If you believe, if you believe, pause and think, this is your good shepherd. Your good shepherd turns water into wine. Your good shepherd walks on the water. Your good shepherd heals the blind. And, and what we see in these foretastes is what you will have and even more is what Jesus has in store for you in glory. What Jesus has in store, what your good shepherd has in store for you and for his sheep is beyond your wildest dreams when we walk on the new earth in our physically glorified new resurrected bodies. On that day, all these things, when we read all these accounts, we're supposed to have our hearts swell with desire and wonder and saying, yes, Jesus, reverse that curse. And Lord, you are going to do that for me. Finally and fully on that last day. Can Jesus heal? Absolutely. But on that last day, which is the beginning of all of our future days, it will be glorious. And until then, if Jesus chooses not to heal, he knows our frame. He knows our sicknesses and more. And as our good shepherd, he shepherds us through the valleys of the shadow of death to bring us to the banqueting table of his splendor. So here in this first showdown of point number one, Jesus' works prove the glory of his identity. And when you see him healing on the pages of scripture and his teachings and cleansing the temple and turning water to wine and more, that is meant to comfort you and encourage you that your good shepherd is with you. Point number two, goats don't believe the good shepherd. Next verse, verse 26. So tell us plainly if you're the Christ, Jesus, as I told you, and my work should prove it to you. Verse 26, Jesus is very clear, concise, and stern. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So why do the religious leaders who saw the works of Jesus, who heard the teachings of Jesus... Uh, they were there for the feeding of the 5,000 and the multiplication of the bread and fish. With their very own eyes, they see what Jesus does, they hear what Jesus teaches, and the end result of them digesting those realities is let's kill Jesus. Why? Jesus tells us in verse 26, it's because they are not his sheep. This means then, Seeing is not necessarily believing. I've heard people say that if, well, if I had just been there, if, if I had just been there and could have seen him feed the 5,000, or if I had just been there and seen him heal the blind man, then I would believe. That's not necessarily the case. Because it is written, and we have the more sure word before us that explains the, the miracles and wonders that Jesus did. The religious leaders' problem was not intellectual. Their problem was not a matter of having enough information. They knew the Bible better than anybody. 
They heard Jesus teach. They saw what he did. Their problem was not a matter of interpretation. Their problem was not a matter of misunderstanding. The problem of the religious leaders was their heart. They didn't have sheep-like hearts. What they saw Jesus do and heard Jesus teach only served to harden their hearts in hatred all the more. Their heart problem was tied to their identity, what they were, not sheep. What Jesus calls elsewhere, goats. As I referenced in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus preaches that on that last day of the great white throne judgment, he will separate sheep from goats. And the sheep are the people who listened to his voice and believed. And the goats are the people who did not listen and refused to believe. The sheep enter into eternal glory and the goats go into the lake of fire forever. Their heart problem was tied to their identity. They did not believe. They did not want to believe. They refused to believe. They could not believe. Why? They were not sheep. And they liked that. They smugly self-congratulated that they were not sheep. They enjoyed being goats. They, who self-righteously thought they were the um, near-perfect representation of God, were trying to kill God. You do not believe, verse 26, because you're not among my sheep. And that brief point takes us then to the third one. The good shepherd knows his sheep. We're going to linger here. Look at verse 27. The contrast, those who aren't sheep do not believe, verse 26. But now listen to these three things in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. Look at the first clause that Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice. So so those who aren't sheep don't believe. But here in the beginning of verse 27. But sheep on the other hand. They hear Jesus' voice and they believe. And this is not because sheep are smarter. This is not because sheep have more information or better disposition. It's because the sheep hear Jesus' voice because they are sheep. It's because they believe their sheep. How does this fit with what Jesus taught us earlier in John 3? When he indicated that no one can see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. That's from John 3. This means a heart level transformative work by God has to take place to make sheep sheep. You could argue from scripture that we are all are born goats. And that God, when he causes us to be born again, to make the metaphor weird, is we're born sheep. You see, the amazing emphasis here is not so much that the sheep hear, my sheep hear my voice. The emphasis of the text is that the shepherd speaks. The emphasis of the text is that the shepherd speaks. Jesus speaks to you in his gospel. He calls you by name. Jesus calls us to life in his gospel, makes us his sheep. We hear his voice and we pass from death to life. But you do know that the good shepherd hasn't just spoken once, right? Did you know that you can still hear Jesus speaking? 
Do you know how? Is it closing your eyes and listening to your inner monologue and baptizing that as Jesus' words? No. That's false. It's been said that if you want to hear Jesus speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. This is where Jesus still speaks. This book is the word of Christ. Friends, you do not need impressions. You do not need hunches. You do not need feelings. You do not need assumptions. You need your Bible. And you open it and you let the shepherd speak to you from his word. Read your Bible out loud. And that is, as it were, the voice of the Lord audibly. This is the Vox Dei. This is the word of God. Scripture is the word of Christ. And Jesus speaking to us is not a matter, as I said, of how you feel. It's what he says here to us. And so when he says, my sheep hear my voice... It's when we come to his word and read it, when we hear his word preached, the sheep hear, the sheep listen, the sheep rejoice, the sheep follow. Why? Because the shepherd speaks. Guilt is not a very good motivator. It can create works righteousness. However, not all guilt is bad. How impoverished are we when we have this book, which is the word of Christ, the whole thing, that the spirit takes these words and puts it into our bones and changes us and transforms us into the likeness of Christ as the spirit takes the word and then we go about our days and we we take the word that we read in, in the day or the evening or the night before or whatever and then as we live our days out walking in the light of his word, the lamp to our feet, we live rightly. How how arrogant is it of us to think that we don't need the living word of God? Jesus speaks to us from his word. And the point of Jesus speaking and him speaking to us is intimacy. Intimacy. Jesus shepherds you. Jesus tends you. Jesus loves you in his word by his spirit. He is still speaking in his word. And because the word is living and active, every time you open it, you may have read Romans 8 a thousand times. John 10 a thousand times. And the Spirit of God can let you see new vistas and new treasures and new beauties. There could be new, um, the truth isn't new, but new uh, interactions for you as you mature and grow in Christ or as you are aware of your own sins. All of these things, when you see them in the Word, the Spirit ministers to you in that living, give-and-take relationship. So when the Scripture says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, the emphasis is that the shepherd speaks... And he speaks tenderly, lovingly, rebukes, cares to us in his word. And the sheep hear the word. They know it's true. We know it's food for our soul. We know that his word is wonderful and satisfying. We cherish it. We believe it. We live it out. And even in those moments when we're not hungry or thirsty for the word, 
we sit down, we open it, and we pray, God, give me that taste and thirst for you in reading your word. Give me understanding according to your word. Let me rejoice at your word like one who finds great treasure, the psalmist says. Satisfy me with your love in the morning, as the psalmist says, and more. We follow the shepherd by knowing and obeying his word. So this beautiful metaphor of sheep following the shepherd and knowing his voice, you put feet and flesh on it, and it's reading your Bible, believing it, and obeying it. And then he says, not only my sheep hear my voice, but then Jesus says, I know them. You see, more than speaking to us, Jesus knows us. He knows you. He called you by name. So many people, these, these, all of us really, we have those internal struggles, sorrows, doubts, dashed dreams, joys, and more. And so many people don't feel understood. So many people don't, um, they feel isolated and, and unknown. And here what we're discovering is that Jesus knows you better than you know you. So when you're going through the sorrow and the sickness, when you're going through the pain, when you're fighting the temptation, when you're going through the joys, Jesus knows what you're experiencing better than what you're experiencing. Jesus knows you better than you. So many people believe that, that God is some distant, dispassionate deity. He got the world spinning and then he took off or... Of course he's got far greater concerns and issues to deal with than you. That's how many people functionally think. Right now God is thinking about the big affairs of the world, but he doesn't even maybe know that I exist. Jesus says, last week and this week, he knows you by name, has called you, and that he knows you intimately. Pause for a moment and consider how well you think Jesus knows the Father. We have a low-grade thinking that Jesus knows us moderately. Sometimes he gives us maybe, oh, about three minutes on Tuesdays. Okay, now pause for a second. How well do you think Jesus, God the Son, knows God the Father? And how well does the Father know the Son? Well, think about that, and now look up at verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. Now here he says it again. I know my own, and my own know me. Okay, but look at the beginning of verse 15. Just as. What are you going to say, Jesus? I know my own, his sheep, my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Did you know that? The same infinitely perfect intimacy and knowledge within the Trinity himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, The way the Father perfectly knows the Son, and the Son perfectly knows the Father, in verse 15, in verse 14, Jesus says, 
I know my own and my own know me in the same way, just as the Father knows me. That's how well Jesus knows you. That's why we can say Jesus knows you better than you. From Jesus' standpoint, he knows you with perfect, infinite perfection. I don't know how you can say it more strongly. Jesus knows you as intimately and perfectly as he knows the Father. And we are to know him the same way. Did you catch it? I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Did you know that our joy from now across eternity is to know and grow in knowing the triune God as he knows us because of the gospel? So when Jesus says, I know them, it's not just a mere sentiment that you can put on a a pillow or a hallmark card. This is bound up within the Trinity himself. So when you doubt and and don't think that the Lord knows you, that he doesn't see you, he doesn't hear your cries for help, he doesn't know your joys, when you think Jesus is distant, he couldn't be closer. He couldn't be closer. And they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. What do sheep do? What, what are we prone to do? We can wander. We can move slowly from the pack. We can run ahead from the herd. And at the end of the day, sheep follow the good shepherd because the good shepherd keeps the sheep by his power. That's why Jesus says, they follow me. This should comfort you about the good shepherd. What does it mean that Jesus is the good shepherd? He keeps you. You follow him. The sheep follow not of our own strength, but because we're gloriously compelled by the good voice of the good shepherd. I have never spoken with a prodigal who has come back to Jesus, who when he or she was prodigal, did not know deep down that they still belonged to their shepherd and were straying from their shepherd. No matter how prodigal they were, no matter how much they tried to suppress Jesus and the voice of the good shepherd, they always knew their sin was sin. They always knew the shepherd was still speaking to them, calling them back to him. I have never spoken with a prodigal who didn't know deep down. So even prodigals, the good shepherd will go get and bring back and all the sheep will follow Jesus. You know, some people hear this, and this does not create stability and strength and ballast in their lives. Instead, they hear this, and it causes anxiety because they worry if they're sheep at all. So, so others, they worry, and they hear, they hear this, and they go, they, they look at their own performance as a believer. They, 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 they know they want, they love the Bible. They just don't really want to read it. And so they don't and they have a prayerless life and they look at the evidence in their faith and, and what they do is they wonder, I'm maybe not a sheep at all. They begin to think to themselves, what if I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing? And they worry. Let me tell you something. Wolves don't worry about being wolves. 
Wolves do not worry about being wolves. Goats aren't concerned about falling away. When we have those seasons of doubt, when our Christian performance is exceptionally subpar, and yet we still look and want to follow the Savior, and we're worried that we we get confused and we measure our performance based on ourselves rather than Christ's performance on the cross and, and more. When we're worried about falling away from Jesus, it proves we belong to Jesus. So when Jesus says his sheep follow him, these are words of comfort and confidence to you personally and specifically, not anxiety-inducing. Jesus knows you. Jesus knows where you are. Jesus has a plan. Jesus is shepherding you with his word and he is using your life, this side of glory, by the spirit, with his word, for the father to make you into the image of Jesus all the more. That's how he shepherds us. And he uses the doubts. He uses those times where his word is dry and more to us. Jesus uses all of those things even when we go prodigal in those moments. Jesus uses it all because he died on the cross for all of our sins and rose from the grave, has called us to himself, and we will follow him because it's the shepherd who's doing it. And the reason I can say this, point number four, is the good shepherd gives his sheep eternal life. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. First, eternal life. We have eternal life because we have been accounted with Christ's righteousness. Yes, eternal life is about duration. Yes, eternal life is about quality of life. But eternal life also means that all of your sins have been taken off of you and placed onto Jesus on the cross. And all of the perfect righteousness of Jesus has been credited or imputed to you so that now when the Father looks at you, you are clothed in the Son. Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' knowledge of the Father, obedience to the Father, love for the Father is now counted as yours Forever. That's what eternal life begins and continues for all eternity. You are justified. The plate on the words of that fancy theological term justified, it's not only just if I'd never sinned, but it's also just if I'd lived Christ's life. There's the negative part taken off of us onto Jesus. And all the goodness of Jesus given to us. I give them eternal life. In Christ, not only is our sin removed, his obedience is applied to you. His perfection is applied to you. His goodness applied to you. That's what it means that Jesus is the good shepherd. We saw last week, what does the good shepherd do? I lay down my life for the sheep. That's why he gives us eternal life. It's all applied to us. Next, Jesus says not only eternal life, but we will never perish. 
Jesus has removed the penalty of your sin, past, present, and future, if you're a sheep. And our condemnation that we once faced before we believed the gospel, repented, the condemnation of God's eternal wrath and death, now we have eternal life. That's why we follow him, because he has made us his own. He's done this for you. But third, we looked at this last week, look at what the end of the verse says. No one can take us from him. Is that underlined in your Bible? Is it highlighted, starred, and whatever else you need to do? Do you see that no one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand? Satan will try and always fail. Those who don't follow Jesus will try and always fail, even if they kill us for Christ. The world will certainly try to seduce us with man-made philosophies and ideologies and more to get us away from the gospel, and it will always fail. Do you know why? Who does your security in Christ depend upon? Your security in Christ does not depend on your grasp of Jesus, but Jesus' grasp of you. And did you know that Jesus is strong? Did you know that he has no rival? Let's think about the strong and firm grasp of Christ. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. Daniel 4, 34 and 35, a favorite passage. Nebuchadnezzar, the wicked king, exalted himself against God. God turned him into a madman, lived as a beast in the field for a time. And now he's recovered. And now the king has been put into his mind. He's a believer. And listen to how he responds to God causing him to go crazy and live in the woods. And know what he says about God's hand. Daniel 4.34 And I blessed, Nebuchadnezzar says, the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And here it is. And none can stay his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? So who is strong enough to stay, to stop, to, to, to move Jesus' hand away from his sheep? Nothing. Nothing. All the power, ingenuity of all of humanity across all time, if it could be summed up into one focal moment to try to take us out of Christ's hand, would be nothing like a, like a gnat pushing over an elephant. Your life in Christ is imperishable because your security in Christ does not depend upon your grasp of him, but his grasp of you. That's why Jesus is the good shepherd. Is what he does for us. And lastly, number five, the Father gave all things to the Good Shepherd. Verse 29. My Father 
who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Notice here in verse 29 who the sheep belonged to and who gave them to Jesus. The Father. The Father. This is the parallel idea from Ephesians 1.4. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And on the text goes. You see, the Father has his people. The Bible calls them the elect. Here, Scripture is using the metaphor, Jesus is, of the sheep. The sheep have always belonged to the Father. The sheep needed to get saved. The sheep needed to repent and believe the gospel. They needed, the sheep needed to believe the works of Jesus. They needed to and, and believe that he atoned for their sins on the cross. But all along in God's redemptive plan, God had a flock and has a flock to give to his son. You belong to Christ because the Father gave you to Jesus. And because the Good Shepherd redeemed you from your sins. And just as no one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand, here we see even more so no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. And so whether we think of these... um, eternally large hands that hold us safely or or being held with either hand as we walk down, how glorious of a picture is this? You might have come in here this morning doubting God's love for you. You may have come in here this morning doubting that you are secure in Christ and here you see that really this is all about the goodness of the Good Shepherd and the goodness of the Father of the Good Shepherd and how they hold you. But again, the emphasis in this verse is less on you being held and more on what God has done and is doing. Yes, we are eternally secure, but more so, look at who God is. What would you do if you were God? What would you do if you were the God over you? you'd probably give yourself a break. What would you do if you were the God of over other people? You'd get fed up with them and say, forget it. Don't you know how good I am to you? And you'd cast them out. Not the Lord. This is a God who is perfectly infinite in his patience and love because he chose us before the foundation of the world. And it's part of his plan to love us forever, perfectly and eternally. And that says something about him. But as we were coming to a close... There's another interpretive option for verse 29. It's a technical difference in the Greek. And it has to do with what the Father is giving to Jesus. Uh, Our text clearly reads, My Father who has given them, referring to the sheep to me, is greater than all, so the Father is greater, and no one is able to snatch them, the sheep, out of my Father's hand. That's true. But the other interpretive option, without going into all the other details, can be translated this way. Listen carefully, I'll say it twice. Another way to translate this passage is this. That which the Father has given me 
is greater than all things. And no one is able to take it out of my Father's hands. Let me say that again. That which the Father has given me is greater than all things, and no one is able to take it out of my Father's hands. So in our Bibles, our translators have opted to exclusively have this referred to the sheep being given by the Father to Jesus. The other interpretive option, and both options the Bible teaches, is less about the security of the sheep and more about the authority of the shepherd. In other words, is, is Jesus saying, is he talking personally who the Father gave me? Or is he talking about that which and it the Father gave me? I know this is technical, but in other words, what the other reading is telling us is that the Father gave the Son all authority on heaven and earth, including the sheep. Because this, Jesus is the Son of God and the promised Messiah. You see, the argument with the religious leaders in John 10 has repeatedly been over the authority of Jesus. Tell us plainly who you are. And here, they're false shepherds. Jesus is the true shepherd, the promised David we read last week from Ezekiel 34. There's no doubt or debate about Jesus' authority because the Father's strong arm has given Jesus that authority. Jesus is his son. On this reading, the mental picture changes. In other words, let me, let's paint this. What it says in our Bible is the father and son holding us. The alternate reading is the father handing all authority in heaven on earth because he's the son of David to Jesus. Jesus is taking that authority from the father and then Jesus is holding his sheep with the other hand. Two different images. The Bible teaches both. Both are absolutely true. We just have to make an interpretive decision. Which is Jesus saying in this moment? This reading makes the security of the sheep even stronger because the focus is on the authority and power that the Father has given to the good shepherd. This is what the good shepherd says to you this morning. Listen. This is what makes Jesus good and more. This is what it means for you to be a sheep. And if you're not a sheep, this is Jesus' words inviting you to believe. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. The question for you, my friends, is this. Do you listen? Do you follow? Do you believe? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you that it is true that you all authority is possessed by him. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your glory. We pray now that we would celebrate your goodness, Father, by your spirit. Celebrate your goodness in the Good Shepherd, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.